Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Molly Keck, Janet Hurley, and Robert Puckett. Yeah, so so we thought um, you know, coming into the spring of the year, we, we know that um, folks are starting to deal with lots of insect pests as they become active, as weather warms. Um, and, and, and maybe one of the insects that's one of the most important insects to talk about, at least in, in, in our part of the, the United States, are red imported fire ants, because this is the time of the year that, that these guys become active. These are one of our most economically important invasive species of insects in the United States. Um, they're a medically important pest. They cause us loads of problems. And um, it, it's an insect that, that most folks that live in the South or have for some time have dealt with, have lots of questions about. Um, they're interested in their biology, their behavior, but maybe most importantly, um, means of controlling them for, for um, reducing populations of these ants in and around their homes, schoolyards, parks, et cetera. So, so all of us in, in this group have lots of experience dealing with um, different aspects of, of red imported fire ants. How about you, Wizzy? You want to talk about some of your uh, area-wide or neighborhood IPM work? Sure. So I have been doing what we call a result demonstration, and we are actually in our 16th year. We just did this this past uh, Monday, where we the uh, we have a whole entire neighborhood, and we bait twice a year in the spring and in the fall. And essentially, it's to demonstrate how everybody working together can kind of manage a fire ant population. So this began way back in 2005, and we basically did the, the demonstration where we actually monitored for the fire ants. We came out, we baited the whole entire neighborhood for fire ants, and then I compared the before and after of the fire ant activity, plus I've also been looking for other ant species. and when we first started the project back in 2005, we were finding maybe about two other ant species in the neighborhood um, other than the red imported fire ant. And now that we've been doing this for, um, well, 16 years, they are actually, I find usually about 10 to 12 different ant species within the neighborhood. And, you know, some of those are native, some of those are also, you know, pest species, but, you know, you gotta go with what you got. I think one of the cool things that uh, happened or is happening is, you know, since this has been going on and we've had other invasive species like the tawny crazy ant come into the area, we have those in this neighborhood where we're doing the demonstration, but they have never reached the astronomical numbers that they have in other parts of Texas. And I don't know if that has anything to do with us and our consistent baiting or if it's just something that, you know, they've never taken a foothold, but it's one of those things that it's just kind of really cool that we've been monitoring and, you know, the neighbors all have really enjoyed it. And we do a um, survey every fall, essentially, and it has shown or the, the, the survey results have shown that we have reduced the cost that people in the neighborhood spend on fire ant management, as well as reducing pesticide usage, because we are 
you know, essentially doing everything. So the way that the program works now, it has evolved into the front yards and all of the common areas being baited by a professional pest management company. And then we have a fire ant education day where people can come and learn about fire ants and the products that we're using and stuff like that to manage the population in the neighborhood. Yeah. So this is, this is really interesting. So th th there's a, there's a number of sort of uh, impacts that you guys have noted in your program. There's sort of hallmarks of, of uh, area-wide programs and that's the reduction of pesticides, reduction of cost, and then increase increase in native species of ants. And I, I think for those folks that have never heard of these sort of area-wide programs, it'd be good to sort of mention, you know, why we think um, this is a superior method for controlling red imported fire ants. And, and it, it's really pretty simple, right? So if you've got a, a, a single property that's surrounded by properties that all of which have red imported fire ants, if you're just treating a, a single property for those, well, you're going to have a, a lot of trouble um, controlling that population at that single property long term because of course red imported fire ants they swarm uh, several times a year and so you have um, uh, winged reproductives that mate and fly into your yard and set up shop again and so, so those area-wide programs can 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 really accrue some benefits um, as you've seen that's that's uh, probably really important for our listeners to know and and so you know if, you, if, if you're thinking about this um, you know if, if you live in a and I have an HOA and might be uh, thinking about trying to start up a program like this. Um, we'd, we'd love to talk to you about it. I, I, you know, I, I don't know your feelings about this, but, but I know for myself, um, I, I'm a big advocate of using insecticidal baits, granular baits for red imported fire ant control. Yes. Um, you know, the, these are tried and true insecticides that have been designed to exploit, you know, one of the factors that leads to the success of the invasion of red imported fire ants in the United States and elsewhere, and, and that is their uh, extraordinary foraging intensity. So these, these ants are able to exploit food resources that become available to them in the environment um, at a much greater rate than many of our native ant species. And this is very important when we think about sort of integrated pest management approaches to managing red imported fire ants. So if you if a if a food resource becomes available to fire ants um, in, in a yard or a park or a schoolyard, they're they going to be the ants that that find that food resource and dominate it to the exclusion of our native ants. So so from that perspective, um, you know when we broadcast a granular fire ant bait. Uh, into a habitat, and, and if we've done our IPM homework and and we're um, uh, certain that that there's a significant population of red imported fire ants, we know that those are going to be the ants that find the baits um, and that ultimately um, win any competitive interactions with our native ants in terms of exploiting the baits um, that they perceive as a, a food resource. So, so you know, I, I, I'm a I'm a huge advocate of using baits for red imported fire ants, and but there's you know there's there's other uh, methods for managing them. Of course, there's contact granular insecticides, things like top choice, over and out. Um, and these are products that can, can um, kill a colony of red imported fire ants if they're applied properly. Um, but the, the one thing, the, the advantage of those products is that once the active ingredient has been released by the, the granule and makes its way into the soil, it provides some degree of um, extended protection of the of the system to which it's been applied. 
Um, so if new queens find their way in, into a yard, for instance, and they, they want to build a mound, they'll come in contact with those um, contact insecticides in the soil. However, um, so will lots of other um, insects and arthropods. And so um, this is a much less targeted approach at dealing with red imported variants than baits. And so in sort of on the bait market, I think the two that sort of control the Oh, the lion's share of at least um, professional fire ant management are things like Amdro um, that any homeowner can go to a big box store and, and buy um, and Advion uh, fire ant bait. Um, more of a professional product, but a homeowner can buy this online and, and um, use it in their yard. Advion's quite a lot more expensive than Amdro, um, but both of them work very well. The big trade-off is the, the time that it takes to um, completely destroy a colony of fire ants with these two baits. So Amdro could take, you know, about six to eight weeks and Advion much faster, um, 72 hours to a week um, to destroy a colony and kill all the individuals, including the queens. Um, Wizzy. So there's, there's, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry, Mark. I was, I had a segue question. So Wizzy, what, um, what baits are you guys using for your area-wide management program? And have you used the same bait the whole entire time? We have used the same bait the whole entire time. Um, and it, it has worked absolutely great. We use a mixed product that has two active ingredients. So it has the hydromethanol that people would find in the Amdro products, but it also has a second product called methoprene. Um, which is an insect growth regulator. So we get a fairly quick knockdown of the mounds with the um, Amdro part of the product, but then with the methoprene part of the product, we get a longer lasting period of control. So that's why we broadcast it usually in the spring and in the fall, because that can knock down the number of mounds that you would see in between those two periods of times. But I think something that is really important, or at least when I'm doing the fire ant education days, it's going to be important for people to know the difference between applying granular versus the bait products, because a lot of people get confused with granular products. You're essentially needing to water those in because it's going to release that chemical into the soil then. With fire ant baits, you don't want to water them in. You want to make sure that you turn off any irrigation systems. You want to make sure that it's not going to rain because it would essentially, since it's being picked up as a food product by the ants, you don't want it to get wet because it would be like you eating a soggy cheeseburger. Nobody wants to eat a soggy cheeseburger. So the ants don't want to eat soggy baits. The other things that you need to make sure is that you're applying it at the, the right rate. And all of this information is on the product label. So if you read your product label, it's gonna tell you what application equipment that you need. It's gonna tell you what setting the application equipment needs to be on. It's gonna tell you the rate that you need to put that out, whether you're broadcasting or doing mound treatments. So all of that information's on there. I find that a lot of people put fire ant bait out at a higher rate than it really needs to be. And that's not going to kill the ants any faster. It's not going to kill them any better. You are just putting more pesticide into the environment than you need to, which you know could have ecological effects, but it's also wasting your money that you could be using on other things. So you really need to kind of make sure that you follow and read the labeled instructions for the product that you choose to use. So 
to follow up on that, just so that our listeners can understand is sometimes when you see these um, applications for bait and it says to use um, a spreader, it may not be the spreader you use to put your fertilizer out, or it could be, but you may have to put it on a very, very um, low setting so that it does go out at the right rate. Right. I mean, and there are, there are different products that are um, formulated to be used and put out with the drop spreaders, which are the ones that people usually use for fertilizer. Um, but then most fire ant baits, especially the professional products, those are meant to be utilized with a handheld spreader. And even when you're using the handheld spreaders, you're still sticking it on the lowest setting because you're really putting out a small amount of bait. A lot of these baits go out at a pound to a pound and a half per acre. So it's a very small amount that you're putting out there. And you're essentially letting the ants do the work for you because they're finding that and they're picking it up as food and taking it back and sharing it with the other ants in the colony. And so you don't have to go around and spend the time looking for every single fire ant mound. So it's actually great to utilize. The, the other thing that I do want to mention about baits is not all of them are able to be used in all areas. So there are only specific baits that can be used around vegetable gardens. And those are usually the spinosad baits. Um, so you again, need to check the label of what you're using and see what areas you can apply those particular products. And I think what's remarkable about that is that you've been using the same product for 16 years. And so fire ants are really different from other insects, um, because of their life cycle and the way that they reproduce and living in that caste system, because you would worry after 16 years of using the same product that you would get resistance, but, uh, you don't really in fire ants. And one reason is because you're not putting it out every single month, either you're doing this once a year and still suppressing the population. Yeah. Two times a year, but yes. Oh, and, and the thing is, it's, um, you know, it, I think the two active ingredients also help because they work differently and they're affecting different systems within the fire ant. Cause one's going to be acting on like the nervous system, whereas the other one's going to act on the way that the insects are growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, all very good points. I, I, the only thing I would add to that discussion is that, you know, when I, when I talk to people about their experiences in, in trying to control fire ants with baits. And usually they call me and they say, Hey, listen, you know, like I, I've, I've been, I've been trying to bait these fire ants in the yard and they don't seem to be dying. What is going on? Am I, am I having a product failure? What, what's happening? And so um, oftentimes I'll ask, you know, so when did you, when did you put the bait out? And, you know, it's like last Saturday morning. And then I'll, I'll go look and, and figure out where they live and go look and see what the weather was doing on that day and discover that it was 45 degrees, you know, for a high temperature that day. And so, Wizzy, you mentioned the, the problems with irrigation, um, either through um, rainfall or, or irrigation systems at a home. We don't want to water baits, right, because they become waterlogged and the ants won't accept them. The other thing is we want to we put these baits out when, when fire ants are foraging. Um, and so, you know, all, basically all of the activity of of, of um, insects is tied to temperature, right? Their, their, their physiology is tied to temperature. And for fire ants, the sort of the wheelhouse temperature range for their foraging is somewhere between 75 and 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And so if you, if you apply baits when it's colder or hotter than that, um, it may be the case that the ants aren't out foraging and then the baits 
that's on the ground, it, it um, gets degraded by UV um, radiation and, and um, you know, eventually is uh, not palatable to the ants. And, and even if it is, it's, it's not effective at killing them. So, the, you know, I tell people a lot of times, you know, if you'll just go and, and, and take a potato chip or if they have hot dogs in the fridge, cut a couple of slices of hot dogs and go lay them around in the yard, wait half an hour, come back. If you've got fire ants feeding on those, those food lures that you've provided them, um, then it's time to bait. You know, insect, social insects at least are, are sort of hardwired in their behavior. If they're foraging in one area of your yard, other mounds in another area are likely to be foraging just the same. So once you see foraging activity, that's the time to bait. Um, so, so anyway, that if, if you do that, if, if our listeners do that, it'll help them avoid some of the problems of um, applying baits when it's not the proper time to do so, I think. Um, hey, Janet, don't you want to tell us about your experiences with fire ants and school IPM? What I do with the schools is especially important when it comes to baiting for the fire ant. And the reason I say baiting for said fire ants is, We've been talking about what we do community-wide and such. And then if we don't, if only one yard is treated and nobody else's yard is that, you know, that causes problems. So with schools, it's even um, more important for others mm -hmm. to understand about fire ants, because when you're looking at a school district, you know, a school campus, you know, it's not just where the students walk up and it's not just the playground. It could be all the vegetative areas around a campus. So getting them to bait, you know, that that takes a lot of time and manpower. So if you're a parent and you're seeing your district grounds people out there doing their baiting, kind of stay away. But know that this this takes a lot of time and effort because they've got to start and, you know, this is about the time of year that most of the schools are um, doing their fire ant baiting based on what we've just heard from both Robert, Molly, and Wizzy about, you know, timing of baits, you know, the weather, that type of thing. So I have to say that, you know, that this is probably one of those things that I've been most passionate about, even though I didn't come into the, the entomology world, but like I said, fire ants aren't my friends. And it's only because when those little darlings get you, I tend to welt up and it lasts with me forever. So that that is a huge point to definitely talk about. I mean, these are a medical um, insect and there are people that are allergic to fire ants to the point where they can possibly go into anaphylactic shock from a fire ant sting. So these can be a very serious pest for some people. I myself am allergic to fire ants. Um, I carry an EpiPen wherever I go and I get allergy shots for them. So it's one of those uh, people do need to be aware if you have a, if you get stung by a fire ant because the sting is what is causing the problem. They're injecting venom. Um, so fire ants do bite and they sting, but the sting is what causes the issue. Um, that venom, they can do a venom panel at the allergist and they can determine if you are allergic to them because it can become more serious over time. So this is something that people need to be aware of and they need to pay attention to their reaction to the insects. 
and that's at any age. Yeah, for sure. We, we lose people in the United States every year um, to fire ant stings. That's, that's one of the, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why folks in, in other countries that don't have fire ants or those that have recently become invaded by fire ants are so concerned about them, right? Because they, they know that uh, at least a portion of the population is susceptible um, to having significant reactions all the way up to, to death from fire ant stings. So people are very concerned about these. So, Wizzy, um, you, you mentioned your uh, area-wide program and, and um, baits that you guys use in your program. I, I get lots of um, lots of questions from from folks asking about sort of home remedies for for fire ants. And I know um, some of us live in parts of the state that are sort of chemiverse, so we have a significant portion of the population that really doesn't want any chemical insecticides um, on or around their house. And so are, are there any um, sort of home remedies that, that, uh, that you sort of prescribe um, any of you guys for, for treating? I, I actually did years ago, I've done um, field trials on multiple different home remedies that people would suggest. And I haven't found any of them that actually work well. I have tried uh, blackstrap molasses. I have done dried molasses. I've done the club soda thing that was there for a while. Aspartame, oak ash, coffee grounds, um, baking soda. I, I, that's just some of them. And all of them, essentially, they're not killing the fire ants. They just cause the ants to move their mound. And unfortunately, that mound usually ends up like right next to or maybe a foot or two away from the original mound. So it's not right. even like you're moving them significant distances away from wherever you want them. So you're just kind of chasing them around that point. So I, I personally, I don't recommend home remedies. It's better to use stuff that's formulated and has been tested and should actually work on the fire ants. Hold on. Are you suggesting that things like um, uh, feeding fire ants grits does not kill them? <laughs> and cornmeal? Uh, absolutely not. Robert, do you want to <laughs> tell them why grits doesn't actually make them explode? Uh, yeah. So there's, um, there's sort of this pervasive internet myth that um, if, you, if you bait your red imported fire ants in your yard with corn grits or cornmeal, um, the ants will, will eat the grits or cornmeal. And the idea is that that, the, that that dry material, once it gets into their the interior of their moist bodies, will swell um, with hemolymph and, and eventually cause the ant to pop. And uh, so it turns out we know that that hemolymph is... Hemolymph is insect blood, by the way. Okay, right, right, yeah, sorry. I should have clarified. Yeah, so um, the, the point is that... Um, well, so there's this interesting aspect of fire ant biology in that the, the workers cannot consume solid foods. They have to take it back to the, the fourth um, developmental stage of the larvae inside the colony and offer that solid food to them. They break down the solid foods so that they can then be uh, fed on by the workers, the adult workers. So um, as it turns out, the uh, worker fire ants cannot consume solid foods, including corn grits. So um, in reality, they probably take the corn grit back to the, the larvae who break it down for them. And actually, if you're doing this, you're probably feeding your fire ants. So this is a bad idea. 
And I think I, this is just speculation, but I suspect the origin of that uh, sort of myth about controlling fire ants has to do with the fact that most of our granular baits, um, the carrier matrix for our granular baits is defatted corn grit. And so the process requires that that corn grit is as um, defatted, then the active ingredient for the insecticide is added to an oil, most often soybean oil. That oil then is applied to the corn grit and the corn grit soaks it up along with the active ingredient. And that's what we offer to red imported fire ants with our granular baits. Um, so I think but that's they're probably... not eating the corn grit. They're just sucking the oil off of it. So, right. Well, they, they will return to the colony of corn grit. But yeah, a lot of times in the field. So we, we did a study um, not too long ago, several years ago, actually now, um, Dr. Janice Reed um, was looking at um, the, the selection of corn grit size by fire ants that were being um, attacked by forid flies. It's kind of a long story. But um, we saw most times the ants, yeah, just as you say, they would they would sit on top of a pile of of a of a, a granular fire ant bait and simply suck the oil out of it. Yeah. So don't feed. I, your I just have corn. this vision in my brain of like a little um, Dracula dressed uh, fire ant on top of the pile of bait there. Right. Right. Yeah. Popped into my head. <clears throat> um. Yeah. So, so Robert, uh, you mentioned forward flies. Has anybody done any forward fly work in the group? Molly, have you done any or? A long time ago, I did releases at a local park of one of the more common species that Robert probably remembers the name of. Um, and then I did some releases with Robert just what, a few years ago, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Not too long ago. I think those were, that was a uh, curvatus, Sudacteon curvatus the i that was the last one that we did i think so i don't don't honestly remember so what why are you releasing forward flies around fire ants what are they what are you trying to accomplish with that well the forward flies are a natural enemy of fire ants back in their native land of um, brazil and paraguay and south america and the idea is to, if we release them here then it will help keep their populations in check and when when the releases first started to happen the, you know, and the media got involved and the word got out, people got really excited and they thought, oh, it would mean we're going to eradicate fire ants. And that was never the, the intent of them. It was really just to give them another obstacle to make it so that maybe they're more susceptible to baits or environmental conditions or other things that would in turn help keep the populations lower. And one of the things I think Robert can probably talk more about this. One of the things that was found was that it kept the fire ants from being really active during the day because they didn't like the forward flies to come and bother them. And we need to talk about what the forward flies do also after this. Um, but if it, if it, if they didn't like what the forward flies did to them, they stayed down low during the day. And that's kind of a form of control. If they're not out stinging you during the day and foraging, they're only doing it at night when you're not outside then, you know, maybe we can tolerate them more. Um, maybe we can tolerate them better. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's it, Molly. I think the, the fundamental um, sort of underpinnings of the idea of using this particular suite of parasites to, to manage or help suppress populations of red imported variants is that it is known that when, when these flies are active, when, when they're hovering around a colony, or along foraging trails, fire ants tend to suppress their foraging. And so, you know, we talked earlier about one, one of the 
you know, one, one of the main reasons that fire ants have been so successful in invading the United States and other countries is their ability to dominate food resources. So if you can kind of undercut that by preventing them from foraging, the idea is that, you know, our native, our, our suite of native ants may be able to begin to outcompete red imported fire ants over time. And so that's sort of where we are. We're sort of in this waiting game, watching, waiting to see if, if um, the, um, the group of, of these flies that have been released in the U.S. are, are going to have an impact. So far, we, we don't, you know, nobody has any data to suggest that they're having a population regulatory effect on, on fire ants. But, um, you know, if you go sample for these flies throughout the range of the red imported fire ants in the U.S., you, you can find these flies. So we know that they're there. They've established, they've spread their range um, to include now all of the areas where fire ants occur. So these flies, if anybody's curious, they're in the genus Pseudacteon, and uh, there's several species that have been released, and they're really interesting. They have a really interesting biology and a really satisfying biology for those of us that have to deal with fire ants. So they, they actually seek a fire ant host, and the females inject an egg through the exoskeleton of the ant where uh, the egg hatches. And then, of course, the ant now has a maggot growing inside. It feeds, feeds on the hemolymph and the sort of it within the thorax of, of the ant. Oh yeah, so, sorry, Wizzy, the insect, hemolymph insect blood um, in the thorax of the ant for several days. And, and as it gets larger, at some point, it has to make a migration to the head of the ant um, before it gets too big to make its way through the constriction between the thorax and the head. And uh, all the while, the, the ant is foraging, defending the colony, uh, you know, feeding larvae in the colony, doing, doing normal ant stuff. They don't necessarily know that they're parasitized, but at some point, um, there are some triggers that influence the worker ant to begin to wander away from the colony. And this is really interesting sort of parasite-mediated host behaviors um, that we're actually very interested in, in in our laboratory. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But um, yeah, so at some point, the the maggot makes its way into the head of the of the ant, and it continues to feed on tissues therein, which includes the brain of the ant. Of course, this kills the worker ant and the fly then the maggot releases enzymes that break down the tissue that hold the head onto the rest of the body and the head falls off. That's where they get their um, common name, the decapitating flies. And then the, the, um, the fly actually pupates inside the head capsule of the, of the fire ant. And then, you know, 30 days later or so wiggles out and starts that cycle all over. So it's, it's a really cool um, uh, system. And, and we, as I say, we know that they've spread all throughout the United States. Thank you so much for sticking with us on the second episode of Unwanted Guests. We hope that you learned some tips about fire ant management. For more information, go to extensionentomology.tamu.edu or fireant.tamu.edu. Catch you next time.